Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. With that, we want to talk this morning about the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And I apologize in advance that you don't have handouts. That's my fault. I was traveling this week, and, and Anna, you know, Anna's our safety net, and Anna was traveling too. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, don't, don't have handouts this morning, but we will nonetheless... Uh, do what we do at Grace, and that's dig into the Word of God. The most important thing is the notes that you have in your hands, the Word of God. And I hope you did bring one, uh, because we do heavily use the Word here. That's what this is all about. The centerpiece of worship should always be the Word of God. And, and that's what we're going to focus on just now. So the judgment seat of Christ, the believer's reward, what is that about? What is that about? There's so much confusion over that. Uh, there are a lot of people that, are, that, that have anxiety attacks when they think about that uh, because there have been so many misconceptions about that. Revelations 22.12 tells us, Behold, Jesus is speaking here, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. So Jesus said, I'm coming quickly and suddenly, and when I come, I'm going to have rewards with me, rewards. When I contemplate the judgment seat of Christ, and I do contemplate the judgment seat of Christ, one of the things that I do think about are the rewards that are going to be handed out there. And I want to set your mind at ease right from the beginning. It is a time of rewards. It's really unfair the way the King James translators and others who have followed in their train translated that word judgment, because when we think of judgment, we think of what? Something bad, always. And all the judgments in Scripture are judgments on sin except this one. This one is a time of rewards, and we'll see that as we move through the Scriptures. Now, <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he mentions this same issue and remember, all of the letters in the Bible, all of the epistles in the Bible are written to Christians. There's not a line of any epistle in the, in the Bible that's written to lost people. They're only written to Christians. And Paul here is writing to Christians, and he's writing to Timothy. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. This is toward the end of his ministry. And quite frankly, that's Probably all Paul had to keep. Paul wasn't one that was given to a lot of material things at all. At all. I have finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto them also that love is appearing. So when Jesus comes for his church... It will be immediately followed by a time of rewards, a time of rewards. And 
what your reward will be, there will be several factors that determine that, that determine that. Now, Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, which will be our focal verse when we get to that. He says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's talking about believers, as we shall see in our message this morning. In Romans 14.10, he says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That same issue is in view. All Christians are going to rise to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the question that we want to pose in the answer, an answer from Scripture this morning is, what is this judgment seat? Since we are all going to be there, we just read that, what is this judgment seat? Every Christian, every believer will be at the judgment seat of Christ. And he says we must all appear. That sounds like a summons, doesn't it? <laughs> this, is not a, this is not one appointment that you will wiggle out of. You'll be there on call at the judgment seat of Christ to face the Lord Jesus Christ and receive a reward for what you've done in your body. And it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. Now, we'll talk about the negative a little bit later on. There are some negatives attached to it. I'll just tell you that in, in advance. God knows you need motivation. <laughs> we all do. <clears throat> but it's a positive thing. Christianity is the only thing I know of that you can engage in where everybody wins and nobody loses. Everybody wins. Every Christian will rise to the Bama seat, every last one, to receive a reward from Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to take this from a, a simple standpoint and just consider each aspect of the judgment seat right down the line, the place, the period, the person, the people, who's going to be there, the purpose, why are we doing this, and the promise that's attached to this. Wonderful, wonderful promise attached to this. First of all, where? Where is the judgment seat going to take place? Well, we read earlier in Revelations 22, 12 that it's going to be when Jesus comes again. And you remember that we are told that he will come back and he will stand on nothing in the clouds and call us forth. The dead in Christ will rise and then those that of us that are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. And so, and a lot of people are confused about this and for a lot of different reasons, for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons that people are confused, uh, there are those who are amillennial, amillennial, I'll explain that term. The, millennium, the millennial kingdom, as you know from Revelations, is going to be the thousand year period which Jesus comes back and reigns right here on earth. And we're going to be with him, guys. We get to reign with him. That's way cool. Okay? If you're, if you're having a hard time right now, this is all the hell the Christian will ever see. This is it. This is it. Contrary to what anybody else wants to suppose in their mind, and there's a lot of legalism out there that says, oh, you know, we're going to go through the tribulation period. And, but the Bible, I don't see that in the Bible. It doesn't match that. The Bible does not match that at all. 
Jesus has not fulfilled all of his promises to Israel, and he's a God that cannot lie. He's a God who never changes, and those promises will be fulfilled. Scripture has never struck those out. And so there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ right, right here on earth, and we, believers, will be reigning with him. Okay? And so when he comes back, and calls us to himself in the air, immediately we will go into the presence of the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians tells us that we will ever be in his presence from that time forward. So that has to include his reign in the millennial kingdom, which will come later. And on top of that, not only will we ever be with him, but John chapter 5 tells us he's going to take us and take us to the Father's house, and there's where the rewards will be. You know, a lot of misconceptions have been conjured up about this. You know, the whole St. Peter at the gate thing. You know, I don't know what scripture ever gave anybody authority to set St. Peter at the gate. That's not in here. <laughs> That's somebody's fairy tale or fantasy. And, you know, there's all kind of jokes floating. Well, you know, when I get there and St. Peter uh, looks at his list and, well, do, do you get in? Well, let me look at my list and see if your goods outweigh your bads and, no unbeliever will ever get close to heaven. They're not going to get close to heaven. No scripture ever gives St. Peter the authority to sit at the gate. And the judgment doesn't take, side out, doesn't take place outside some pearly gate. It takes place in the Father's house. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Now again, King James, and, and don't get me wrong, I memorized King James, I grew up with King James, Love the dignity of King James, but if you don't understand old archaic the English, King James will, re will really lead you down the primrose path in a big way. King James says, in my father's house are many mansions. And so you hear all kind of Christian songs about my mansion in the sky, and I'm going to be right down the street from Jesus. I don't want to be down the street from him. My place is in the father's house. I'm a son. You're a son or a daughter. You don't want to live, you don't want to be his neighbor. <laughs> but that's what tradition has done to us. Tradition always gets in God's way. So this is going to take place in heaven immediately following the rapture. And, you know, people have this idea that when they read 2 Corinthians 5, that that means that we're going to, you know, we're all going to be together and, and Jesus is going to have like this big jumbotron or something, you know, and, and all of the sins you've committed since you've become a Christian are going to be flashed up there. Well, you know, if I thought about that very long, I wouldn't want to go to heaven under any circumstances. <laughs> now, don't look pious. Everybody in here has done something since you've been a Christian since you've been a Christian, that if everybody else in here suddenly saw it on a jumbotron, you'd go jump off a bridge. <laughs> no, God's not in the business of embarrassing his children. There's nothing near that. Nothing, nothing near that. Now, <clears throat> first you ought to know that there are seven major judgments in Scripture. Seven major judgments. And if you're taking notes, you'll want to get these down and study them for yourself later on because... We'll just brush across them and mention them. And, but I want to make a point here. God has a specific time and a specific place and specific people 
that are involved in each one of those judgments. You know, like I said, if you're a millennial and you don't believe that there's a kingdom, that there's going to literally be a thousand year reign of Christ, then everybody gets lumped together at the white throne judgment. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> now, God is very specific in all of these. First, there's what we call the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin. When did it take place? The period, about 30 A.D. The place, Calvary's cross. The judge, God himself. You see, God fully and finally judged sin on the person of Christ at the cross. Fully and finally and freely, with no coercion from anyone, he did it according to the counsel of his, will, his own will. He judged sin on Jesus Christ at the cross. It is there that he who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians tells us. And as a result of that, those who will trust in him in faith and what he has done and rather than any, anything that you can do are covered by his act on the cross of dying for our sins. Those and only those. Only those. He died for us. And the place was on Calvary. The judge was God himself. If you ask who put Jesus on the cross, many people will say, well, you know, it was the Jews. No. No. They acted of their own will. Okay. Uh, and, and, and they were held responsible for that. But... They weren't the ones that predetermined that. God predetermined, the Bible tells us, that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. Some people say, well, it was the Romans. No, they were a tool. They were strictly a tool, and, and, and they paid for that also. But it was the predetermined will of God that placed Jesus on the cross. It weren't the nails that held him there. It was our sins that held him there. He could have come down at any time. He clearly said, he said, look, I could, I could call 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 in number. You know, that's 72,000 angels. One angel was dispatched in the Old Testament, killed 185,000 people in one night. So 12 legions, you know, that'd be a classic case of worldwide overkill if they got busy. <laughs> So no, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was our sins that held him there. He volunteered to do that. So sin was judged fully and finally and freely on the cross of Jesus Christ. The second judgment, the judgment of self. Now, the period is now throughout the church age and throughout the age of the believer's life. The place is earth. You can find that. 1 Corinthians 11.31 is one of the places, and there are many others. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. And so if we carefully, as Christians, evaluate our own lives and bring our lives under the control of the Holy Spirit, then we won't come under the correcting judgment of God. The correcting judgment of God. That's the judgment that we face as Christians. Every day we are to govern ourselves and bring our lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit, yield to Him, and under the Word of God. 
And if we do that, then God doesn't have to chasten us. That's the judgment that he's talking about for believers. That's Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every, every son and daughter that comes to him. So if he's not cleaning you up or beating you up, you're lost. I want to say that again because I don't want it to escape you. Are you it? If he is not cleaning you up or beating you up, you're lost. Because the Bible says he scourges every son and daughter that comes to him. None of us are exempt that are his children. And when he starts to correct you, and that's the judgment that he's speaking about here in the believer's life, when God begins to correct you, he's going to bring things into your life to get your attention. <laughs> and none of them are pleasant. None of them. Time does not permit me to allow everybody to give testimony, but I'm sure there's plenty of testimony here <laughs> on that issue. So the time is now, the church age, the judge is the spirit-controlled believer. This is my obligation to evaluate my life and so pattern my life according to the scriptures and yielding to the Holy Spirit that I don't come under the chastening of God. Now, Christ's death on the cross took care of the sin principle, but we, as we live the Christian life as believers, we have to discipline ourselves. God, we're under his eye, but not under his thumb. He has given us something that everybody hates, responsible freedom. <laughs> we like the freedom part. We don't want to be responsible too often. So he's given us responsible freedom in his economy. The third judgment, the judgment of the believer's works. Now, that's the one we're talking about this morning, the judgment of the believer's work. The, the, the period or the play, time is the rapture. The place is heaven, heaven in the Father's house. The judge, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the fourth judgment is the judgment of Israel. Israel is going to be judged. God made that very clear. It hasn't happened yet, and God always keeps his word. He's a God that cannot lie. Israel is going to be judged. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 44. You know, it, it talks about Christ's return at the end of the, the tribulation period, and at that point, Israel is going to be judged. It says he will purge out of Israel the rebels, those who... Rebel against him. And that's going to happen then. So each of these first four judgments involves a specific time, a specific period, and we know who's going to be the judge and we know who's going to be involved in that. God is always very, very specific about judgment. Very specific about judgment. And he's clear and distinct. The fifth judgment, the judgment of the Gentiles. Now, this is the judgment of the nations that the Bible talks about, the nations. The period is the end of the tribulation. The place is earth, and the judge is Jesus Christ. You can find that, a reference for you. speaks about in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, where the Lord comes and separates the believing Gentiles from the unbelieving Gentiles, the believing ones are caught up to be with him. The unbelieving ones are cast into the fire with the devil and his angels, his minions, the demons. <clears throat> you remember Christ comes down at that point. That's the, the second coming. 
you see, uh, there's a lot of confusion about the return of Christ for the church and the second coming of Christ. And people want to put those together. They're not. Those are distinctly different. 1 Thessalonians tells us when he comes for us that he's going to call us up to meet him in the air. Okay, Matthew 25 and other places tell us when he comes for his second coming. The first coming, he came to bring salvation. The second one is to bring judgment on sin. His second coming, it says his feet will touch down. You can find this in Daniel. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And, and when that happens, it's not going to be a great day for a whole lot of folks to see Jesus. Not at all. Because time's up at that point. <clears throat> so the period at the end of the tribulation, the place, earth, the judge, Jesus Christ. Sixthly, there's the judgment of Satan and his demons in Scripture. And you can find that in Jude 6. Jude 6 is pretty clear on that, that those who did not keep their first estate, there was a failure to maintain proper vigilance and maintain their position in heaven, and this began with the Genesis or uh, with Satan when he fell and he dragged a third of the angels from heaven with him, according to Revelations, and then some of those demons, that's what the angels become that, that fall, and they cannot be, ever be restored. That's a done deal. That's final. They're, gen they're not generated beings. They're created beings, so they can't be regenerated. That's the difference. That's the difference. Uh, my daughter was about six years old. She said, Daddy, she said, if Satan's the one called all, causing all the problems here, why don't God just save him? You know, that's a wonderful question. I had to think about that for a minute. And the bottom line is, is he, he's a created being, not a generated being. And so angels cannot be regenerated once they fall. <clears throat> and Jude tells us that the ones who committed the Genesis 6 sin where the angels cohabitated with human women and produced a, a half-demon, half-human kind of Rosemary's baby kind of thing that could not be redeemed by the God-man Jesus Christ. And God said, I'm not having that, and he sent a flood and wiped all that out. That's one of the reasons we had a flood. Because God wasn't going to have that. Satan understood Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, even if Adam and Eve did not. And so he tried to corrupt that seed. He's been trying that. There's nothing new there. It's one of his perennial strategies. Also, uh, his major strategy is disarming you and I of the word of God. That's what he did to Eve. That's how he deceived her disarmed her of the Word of God. And that hasn't changed. He still does that right today. Right today. <clears throat> so at the end of the thousand-year kingdom, the Bible says that Satan and his angels, you know, they're going to be loosed for a minute, and then they're going to be cast into the fire, hell fire. A guy that I work with, he said, Jim, he said, I know, you know, you've got this whole God thing going on, and and, 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 you know, you, you believe that there's an afterlife and you, you believe that you hear little voices inside your heart and everything. He said, I ain't there. He said, but even if that is true, he said, when I go to hell, I'll just be one of Satan's helpers. I said, where'd you get that? 
<laughs> you can't be one of his helpers. He's going to be tormented alongside you forever, forever. And you, he said, well, you know, I mean, how, much, how long can I last in the fire? I said, indefinitely. He said, how's that? I said, well, just like when I am resurrected, unless Jesus comes before I die, which that'd be way cool. I'm all right with that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the good news is you're going to heaven, and the better news is you're going today. I'm cool with that. <laughs> but but when, <clears throat> when I'm resurrected, I will see, receive a glorified body that's capable of withstanding the glory of God. When you're resurrected, if you're lost, you will also have a body that's changed. It won't be this thing that we have now. It will be capable of withstanding eternal torment. Eternal torment, permanently. Well, see, we don't think about that. We just think about the glorified bodies that we'll receive, and that's wonderful. But there's another side to that. Those who are resurrected that don't know Christ will go into eternal punishment and eternal hell, seven times hotter than hot, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. Don't want to know. <laughs> not, not overly interested in that. <laughs> but they're going to have to also have a body that's capable of withstanding that type of torture for eternity. Man, that's a wake-up call. <clears throat> Seventhly, and you can find some of that in Revelations 20.10. Seventh is the judgment of the unsaved of all ages. Now, this is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne, you can find that in Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. The great white throne judgment. And that is the unsaved of all the ages, and they'll be resurrected, as I just said, to face the judge. The judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in those seven judgments... That completes God's judgment plans. And the thing that I, I want you to get from that is that God is very distinct in that. You, don't, you can't have be, fall into the error of lumping everything together and lumping everybody together because we're not. We're not. Now, the one we want to focus on is the judgment seat of Christ. And for that, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the introduction, and God willing, we'll get through, <laughs> through the message. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 5. And here we're introduced full face to the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10 says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it's good or bad. And here we're introduced to the judgment seat. And again, as I said earlier, it's, it's a, sort of a travesty that King James translators and all that followed in their train translated that as judgment, as judgment, because that gives us all types of misconceptions. It's actually the Bema seat. B-E-M-A is the word. Bema. Bema. And 
Bema actually describes the place of judgment. It doesn't describe anything negative. It, it does not describe anything negative at all. It describes a place, literally it means a raised platform mounted by steps. That's literally what that Greek word means. And, and it's translated judgment seat, and as a result of that, I think that's uh, the, the reason for a lot of our misconceptions about what's going to happen when believers stand before Christ. It's only, it only has connotations of prominence, dignity, and authority, and honor, never punishment. Never punishment. Never, ever. And when the Holy Spirit wrote to people, he typically wrote in the language that they, that they understood and also gave illustrations that they would be able to connect that truth with. For example, Corinth was on a tiny little neck of land that connects uh, southern Greece with northern Europe. And it's an isthmus, a tiny little neck of land. Back in early days before canals, it was used as a tramway. They would put these big rollers down on the ground. The ships would come sailing around to that isthmus. They'd pull them up on those rollers with horses, and they would tram them across that tiny little neck of land and put them back in the ocean on the other side to save days and weeks of sailing and also great expense. So it was the main east-west trade route by sea, and it was the main north-south trade route by land. It was a, a commercial center, was, was uh, huge in the economy of their day. And on Cor at Corinth, they had a stadium, a stadium where they held what was known as the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games were for Greek citizens only. You could not participate in those games unless you had Greek citizenship. And this was a big, huge outdoor stadium. Uh, the Olympiad started about that time as well, and you know about that. Well, the Isthmian Games were held on the off years. Originally, the, Olympia, the Olympics, the Olympia, Olympiad, was held on the first and the third year. In the second and the fourth year, they held the Isthmian Games. And there would be a contest. And... The winner of the contest would be led to the Bema. And the, the Bema was a raised platform in the middle of the stadium. You see the same thing in the Olympic Games today. If you paid attention, the same thing is there today. And this raised platform that is ascended by steps, the, the winner of that contest is brought in led to ascend, to rise to the Bema, and a leading citizen or some prominent person would take a garland or a wreath or something and lay it around that person's neck, bestowing honor upon them for being the best athlete in that particular competition. So when the Holy Spirit told us about the Bema seat in 2 Corinthians 5, the Corinthians would know something about that. They would understand that it's a place of honor, a place of dignity, a place of rewards. That's what the Bema Seat of Christ literally means. It is a place of honor, dignity, reward. It is not a place of punishment in any sense of the word. 
Very important. Now, that's where it's going to take place. John 14.2 tells us that. You know, where is this Bema? Well, it's going to be in heaven. You say, why? Because in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you and I'm going to take you to the Father's house. So it has to be there that we're going to ascend to the Bema. And all believers are going to be there. Isn't that great? All believers. Now, what's the period? The period of the believer's judgment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. When is this going to happen? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command or a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. So what's the period immediately after the rapture? And by the way, the word rapture doesn't appear in Scripture, and people get all uptight about that. They say, well, it's not a biblical word. Well, you call it whatever you want. You know, you, you can define that how you want. It's, it's defined. You can call it by whatever name. You, we're going to rise. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to ever be with him from that day forward. So the place, the Bema, heaven, the period, the time, when's this going to take place? Immediately after the rapture. Now, who is the person who will preside at the Bema? Who will be the judge at the Bema? Back to 2 Corinthians 5.10, our text, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Of Christ. So Christ is going to be the judge. I mean, it's going to be personal. Did you ever think of that? It's going to be personal. You know, God, God is always personal with believers. Everything is personal with him. You know, he, it's not a thing of, well, all of those of you that have scored more than 75 go to the right side of heaven, and those of you who are scored left go to the left side, and, and there will be a group there handing out crowns. No. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Not at all. It's personal. <laughs> it's, I know, I know, it's, it's sick. But it, it's personal. <laughs> it is. God's always personal with his, belief, with his children. I mean, you're going to get a reward from Jesus Christ himself. The Lord of glory is going to say, you, Rob, you, here's yours. Man, that's just awesome personally, standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, John 5.22 tells us why he has the authority to be that judge. John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 tells us that God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. All judgment. And you can find that in other places. But he's committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus Christ is going to be the judge that determines what your reward will be as a believer when you get to heaven. Wonderful, wonderful truth. And he said it. We read it earlier in Revelations 22. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give 
to give. So the reward will come from Christ himself, not from a group of angels that are just kind of working that out. He's going to be the dispenser of the gift. Now, what about the people? Who are the people that are going to be there? Well, again, look at verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, some form of the personal pronoun we or us appears in this passage 26 times. Over and over and over, God is trying to get our attention and help us to understand that it's us, believers, we. The epistles are only written to believers, only. So we are the ones that will be there to receive that personal reward from Jesus Christ, us. Now, <clears throat> look at um, verse 1. I'll show you that it's believers. It's right here in the context of the passage. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Can an unbeliever say that? No. Unbeliever can't say that. No unbeliever will get near this. Uh, drop down to verse 5. And look at that one. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Does an unbeliever have the Spirit of God dwelling inside? No. No. We have the Spirit. And that word pledge is the Greek word erebon. It is the word for a wedding ring. A wedding ring. You know, has no beginning and no end. A wedding ring. So you say, well, you say you're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jim. How do you know that? Well, I already have the ring. <laughs> it's a done deal. It's settled. Drop down to verse 8. What does it say? We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present, to be at home with the Lord. Can an unbeliever say that? No. No. So the, at the judgment seat, if you're there, then that means you're saved. Because only the saved will be there. There won't be anybody else there. It's only the believers. Look at verse 11. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. So there again, the we has to be believers. Look at verse 16. There from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new, the new has come. So this we is the we of faith. It's the believers. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the seven judgments, the Christian is only really going to be subjected in this day, in this age as we know it, to three of those. One of them is the judgment on sin. You say, wait a minute. You just said Jesus paid the price. Am I going to have to face that and pay for my own? No. No. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us 
Paul's writing, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if he died for me, he died as me. Okay? It's identification truth. That is one of the truths that's so crucial for believers to catch up with, our identification with Christ. The day you trusted him with salva- for salvation and placed all of your faith in what he has done and came to him in identification, in that moment, everything that he did was credited to your account in heaven. In that moment, instantly. So if he died for me, he died as me. So I'm dead. If he was buried for me, I'm buried. If he was raised for me, he was raised as me, so I'm raised. And Philippians tells us that we're already seated in the heavenlies. When the scripture wants to tell us something that is so sure it cannot be changed, it gives it to us in a past tense. That's what the Greek language did for us. One of the things that it did for us. One of the reasons God used that language to write the New Testament. It gives it as a past tense as if it's already happened because in the mind of God it has. In the mind of God, you, Christian, are already seated in the heavenlies by means of our head. We are his body. Our head is in heaven. The body breathes through the head. The body doesn't function without the head. And that's why Philippians tells us that we're already seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We're just walking around on this crust because God left us here to do a job. Say what? Yeah, he left us here to do a job. He left us here to represent him to lost people that don't know him. That's why he left us here. I mean, if he didn't have a purpose for that, he'd have just killed us and took us on the moment we were saved. He didn't save you to put you in a safe deposit box or simply to make you fireproof. (laughs) That's not why he saved you at all. He saved you to represent you. He came into you to walk around on your feet, to kneel with your knees, to help with your hands, to speak with your voice, to represent him. We are his body. The only means that he is going to function in this world today is through you. And by his own self-imposed reduction, he chose to do it that way. Chose to do it that way. So we have the incredible privilege of representing Jesus Christ. Us, us, have the privilege of representing the God of the universe. And for many people in this world, you are the only Jesus they're ever going to see. So he has already paid the price in identification with him. That's credited to our account is what that literally means. Literally means. You know, back in the early days of the settlement of the West, the Western United States, um, they had great prairie fires. Still have a lot of fires out that way. But they had prairie fires. I don't know if you've been in the desert before, but... The desert, in the desert, they have this thing that they call the Santa Ana winds. I was out in Barstow, California, in the middle of the desert doing some work, and, and, and one of those things came up, and, and it was like a wind of 60, 70 miles an hour, and it was hot. I mean, blazing hot. 
You know, we always think of a nice breeze when the wind blows. Not there. I mean, just hot, scorching hot. Well, back in the early settlement of the West, they had prairie fires. And these prairie fires would be swept along by these really scorching hot winds, and they would travel at the speed that would catch a horse. You couldn't outrun it. Okay, you know, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have four or five hundred horsepower vehicles. <laughs> they had literal horsepower, and this thing would travel at the speed that would catch a horse. And <clears throat> the Indians taught the settlers how to survive those. And here's what they did. They would, when they looked in the distance, and it's so flat, you could see for miles and miles. So when they looked in the distance and saw this thing coming, they would dig a huge circle, a trench in a huge circle. And then they would set fire inside the trench, inside the circle, and burn up everything inside the circle. And then they would place themselves and all of their possessions and animals in that circle. And when the fire arrived, it could not burn what has already been burned. And so it went around them and they were spared. When you stand under the cross of Jesus Christ, you stand in that burned out place, you indeed are fireproof. No burning for you. No burning for you. Romans 8 says, there is therefore, 8-1, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. This earth is all the hell you're going to see if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, that ought to be good news. Because the other side, that's pretty tough. <laughs> pretty tough. <coughs> so the believer engages in self-discipline during his time here on earth. Now, what is the point or the purpose of this judgment? What's the purpose? Why? Well, you can find that in Romans 14, 12, among other places. Romans 14, 12. Why? What's the purpose of this? Well, I told you earlier that it was about rewards, and it is, to receive a reward. But Romans 14, 12 tells us something else. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Every believer is going to give account of himself to God. See, God, who made us and made all things, knows that as, as human beings, we respond to motivation. We respond to motivation. We do. And so our motivation, then, is that we know as believers that we are going to stand face to face with the King of kings and Lord of lords and give account of what we've done since we've been believers. That's motivation. You know, authority motivates. I mean, what's the first rule of self-driving, or of safe driving? Watch for the police. <laughs> Say, oh, that's sin, Jim. Well, yeah. I want, I want you to tell me you haven't done that. <laughs> Watch for the police. And then when he pulls out on the street and goes on after somebody else, you say, praise the Lord, and you floor it again. <laughs> Just happens to be the truth. 
Yep, probably nobody. I mean, you know, you got halos and all, and you've never done that. But <laughs> but authority motivates. Somebody once asked Daniel Webster, the great believer, the great Christian, what is the deepest thought that he has ever experienced? And he said, the deepest thought that I ever experienced was thinking about my personal accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ. Personal accountability. I'm going to stand in front of him someday and give account of my Christian service. Now, there are many views on how this thing works, and some people say, well, this is a judgment which will determine whether we get into heaven. That's a fairly common view. You know, it's the whole St. Peter at the gate thing, okay? Well, by the time you get to this point, you will already have been raptured, glorified, and seated in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. I mean, if you've already been raptured and glorified, there's nothing else to do to you in terms of qualifications for heaven. Man, there's nothing else to do. You're in. That's over. Look at Romans 8.30 with me just for a moment. We'll come back to Corinthians, but Romans 8.30. Bible leaves. Man, I love to hear that sound. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Look at what he says. These, talking about the believers that he foreknew and he predestined back in verse 29. And by the way, foreknowledge is not what a lot of people want to describe it. You know, a lot of people want to describe foreknowledge as, you know, like you and your wife are riding down the road and a guy comes whizzing around you in his car just, just at about a Mach 3 and he's weaving all over the road and he's obviously drunk. You say, hey, you know, if that guy keeps driving like that, he ain't going to make it. And you go five miles down the road and sure enough, he's smacked into a telephone pole and you say, see there, he wasn't going to make it. And somebody would say, well, that's God. That's, he's, he looks down through the quarters of time and he sees what's going to happen. And that's foreknowledge, not at all. Not at all. That is just horrible theology. Horrible theology. To foreknow means to predetermine an intimate relationship. In John 17, 3, Jesus gives us the definition of eternal life, and he says, this is eternal life, that they, that men may know you, he's praying to the Father, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That word know is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4. Cain knew his wife and she conceived. It's a word of intimacy. Intimacy. God, and for God to, pre, to foreknow, he predetermined to set a love relationship on you before anything was that is. You can find that in Ephesians 1. Before anything was that is, before the universe, before time and all eternity passed, God determined to have a love relationship with you. 
That's what foreknowledge is. Not that he just knows what's going to happen before. That, and we can teach on illustrations that are really good illustrations, but they don't have anything to do with the Word of God. <laughs> the only thing wrong with them is they're wrong. So in verse 29, he says he foreknew, and he also predestined you, Christian, to become conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no leakage there. No leakage there. Those that were foreknown were predestined. The destination is the end. Predestination is what that means. Predestined. He's seen it. He's, you're not predestined to start. You're predestined to finish. You're predestined to get there. That's what he's saying. And he has predestined that. And as a result of that, he carried it all the way through. And in his mind, you've already been glorified. And that happens at the rapture. So when you stand and rise to the Bema, you will have already been through all of that and there's nothing else left to do to you. Now there are those that have a view, um, this whole thing of works. Some say that, well, this judgment is the judgment of which God is going to punish believers for all the sins they did after they were saved. Go back to 2 Corinthians. He's going to punish believers for their sin that they've committed since they've been saved. You know what that does? That makes a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. That makes the cross of Jesus Christ a sham. That presupposes that God's grace, God's power is not sufficient to save you from all your sins. That's a knock against Christ. When he died for your sins, he died for all of them or he died for none of them. All or none. There's no in-between. You see, when he died on the cross, all of the sins that the people in this room committed were already what? Future. Future. Every sin you were ever going to commit was future when Jesus died on the cross. So to say that a believer has to then pay for the sins that he's committed while being, after becoming a Christian is heresy, quite frankly. It's heresy. I had a guy tell me, he said, Jim, he said, I think it's the height of presumption to believe that you know that you know that you know that you're going to be in heaven and you have no doubt about that right now. I said, no, it's the height of presumption for a man to disbelieve God because that's what he said. It's a done deal. Jesus Christ paid for all of that. Hebrews 8.12 tells us, he says, I will be merciful to their, their unrighteousness, to their unrighteousness. Did you get that? I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness <laughs> and their sins and their iniquities. I re will remember how long? No more. No more. Man, that is just awesome. In Colossians 2.12 
says, we were buried with him in baptism in which you are risen with him to the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins has he made alive having forgiven you all, all trespasses. That's pretty clear. All. You remember Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7? You got to get familiar with, with Ephesians, man. It tells us what we need to know about us, the church. Lots of it. Lots of great stuff there. But Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now notice that. According to. Not out of the riches of his grace, but according to. There's a big difference. If I had a need and, and went to a very wealthy man and said, look, rich man, I have this need. I want to do this great work uh, for some children, and it costs $25,000, and I'd like for you to contribute to that. And he takes out his checkbook, and he writes me a check for $9.30. <laughs> I said, oh, you have given me out of your riches. But if I go to another wealthy man and say, look, same story, man. I got, I got this wonderful thing I want to do for some kids. It costs 25000 bucks. I ain't got that cheese. Did I, did I explain cheese before? In the hood, cheese is that. Okay. <laughs> we know what that is. <laughs> okay. And, and, and I ain't got no cheese, and, and I need 25000 You know, can you help us out? And he sits down, and he writes out a check for 40000 So, ah, you have not given me out of your riches. You've given me according to. You see, God gives us according to the riches of his grace. He's not pinching out grace to you, just a little dab at a time. No, he gives you according to his grace. And he has infinite grace. And grace is something we don't understand, especially when somebody else is receiving it. <laughs> we like grace as long as it's coming our way, man. We're cool with that. But we get upset sometimes. Well, you know, why does God let him do that? <laughs> What's up with that? Well, nobody here has ever done that. But, <laughs> but that's reality. According to the riches of his grace. Romans 8 says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who? Who's going to walk up to Jesus, the judge, and say, well, you know, Lord, you missed one. You know, Hans, Hans did this. I mean, did you know? <laughs> no. doesn't work that way. No one will have that authority, the Bible tells us. There's another interesting view. Other people say that we're going to, what's going to happen is we're going to be judged for sin we didn't confess. Listen. 1 John Chapter 1, study it very carefully. Confession has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sin. Nothing. Confession has to do with your fellowship. Your fellowship is what's in view there. Not your salvation. Not the forgiveness of sin. That happened on the cross. Confession has to do with your fellowship. Read it for yourself. It's all there. Fellowship. It's about our fellowship with our Father, our Heavenly Father. You see, the relationship remains the same when I sin. 
I'm still his father. I'm still his son. He's still my father when I sin. My son is my son. He could slap my face. And I'd probably try to break his nose. (laughs) Now loosen up your halo and let it tilt. Because that just happens to be the truth. (laughs) But when he violates me, that's still my son. And I'm still his father. I can't change that and neither can he. It's a permanent relationship. When you came to Christ, you received the new birth, the birth from above, and that is a permanent arrangement. He's your father. You're his son or his daughter. You can't change it. Neither can he. So what happens when we violate him? The fellowship is broken. The fellowship. And he is more willing to... Let that pass than you are. He's more willing. Confession means to agree with God. I wish I had time to go into that. Means simply means to agree with God. Homo logeo, homo same, logeo to speak. That you speak the same logic that God does about your sin, and in that instant, He says you're forgiven. The fellowship is restored, man. The relationship never changed. Never changed. So that can't be right. All right, quickly. <clears throat> Back to, let's go to John 10. Let's go to John 10. Somebody needs to hear that. John 10. Verse 27. Jesus is in discourse here with the scribes and Pharisees. John 10. Verse 27. Verse 26, he says, but you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. In other words, I'm talking to my sheep and you're not going to understand this because you're not one of them. That's what he's telling the scribes and Pharisees. My sheep hear my voice. These are tests of salvation here. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Not audibly like you're listening to me, but inside. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. And I know them. There's that word again. I have that intimate relationship with them. You remember in Matthew 7 when the, the man came and said, Lord, Lord, did I, I do all these wonderful works in your name? And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, I never had that intimate relationship with you. Don't know anything about you. He said, my sheep, he doesn't mean that he knows who we are. He says, I know them. I have that intimate relationship with them. And they follow me. Are you currently following Jesus? If you're not, you have no evidence that you're a believer. None. And I give them eternal life. Now, how long is eternal? Forever. 
and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And that no one in Greek is a neuter noun, means any noun you can think of. Nothing, angel, devil, demon, doesn't matter. Nothing will be able to snatch you out of the hands of Jesus Christ. My Father who gave me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. So you got a double lock on this thing. The hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father. And nothing, same verb or same noun, nothing can snatch you out of the hands of the Father. That's secure. Man, that is secure. And then Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30 tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if we're in the Father's hand and we are also, if we're in the Son's hand and then we're in the Father's hand and then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, how is Satan going to get in to snatch you out? He'd have to be stronger, more powerful than God. Can't happen. But let's just suppose for a minute, hypothetically, that he could. Text, come give me a seal, brother, if you don't mind doing it. That represents the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order for Satan to get me out, and my life is in there, in the hand of Jesus, in order for Satan to get me out, what must he do? First, he must break the seal of the Spirit. No small task. He'd have to be stronger than God. Can't do it, but hypothetically, let's suppose that he could. So he breaks the seal. Next, what would he have to do, according to that verse? He'd have to break the grip of the Father, right? No small task, can't do it, but hypothetically, let's say that he could. He breaks the grip of the Father. Now, we're down to the grip of Jesus, and I'm in there, and you're in there, because we all have the same kind, degree, and quality of security, because we all have the same Holy Spirit. He can't do it, but let's hypothetically say that he could, and he breaks the grip of Jesus, and I'm exposed and he causes me to lose my salvation. Question, if he could do that, if he could break the grip of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, the grip of the Father, the grip of the Son, and get me out, and he didn't get you out, what would be his only motivation for not getting you out? This is our enemy. This is our enemy. Do you know what that means, if you believe that? If you believe that, he could get me and not you, then you believe that if you get to heaven, you get there by the grace of the devil. Is that clear? That's exactly what that means. Our enemy doesn't, he, it's not his purpose to populate God's kingdom. If he could get one, he'd get us all. Now, Last, in closing, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's so much more we could say. This is about a four-month series. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Same setting, the judgment seat. First Corinthians 3.10 says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, 
Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now he talks about the building materials. Now, if any man builds on the foundations with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Gold, silver, and precious stones are solid and substantial. And they are literally refined by fire. Keep that in mind. They're refined by fire. Wood, hay, and stubble, they're not morally bad at all. They're just not very, they're inconsequential. Verse 13, each man's work, not a sin, he's talking about believers here, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. We're talking about the Bema here. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet is so through the fire. There's not much commentary necessary there. And people look at 2 Corinthians 5 and they say, well, Jim, it says you'll receive a reward for those things that you've done in your body, whether good or bad. And they camp out on that word bad and they say, oh, that's got to be sin. Well, the word bad in the original language is not a moral word. It's the word phallus, P-H-A-U-L-O-S, phallus. It's a word of value. So your work is going to be tried by the fire to determine whether it was inconsequential of no value to God or if it was eminently, eternally valuable to God. That's what the test is going to be about. Not sin, but your service. Your service. And he says, every man will receive a reward. So every Christian is going to rise to the Bema. Every Christian is going to receive a reward. Tragically, many Christians are not going to receive anywhere near the reward that they could. Because tragically, many of us live spiritually inconsequential lives. If you died today, spiritually, who would miss you? Spiritually. Your family's going to miss you. Hopefully your family's going to miss you. <laughs> but spiritually, who would miss you? That's what you have to ask yourself. You see, most of us as believers are not expecting a day of fire. And that day is going to come. You know, there was a guy driving home from work, a large city. He saw in the distance toward his route in his neighborhood, the sky lit up with activity, flames, emergency vehicle lighting, those kinds of things. And he pulls up and there's an old man and an old woman standing on the curb holding each other, just crying their eyes out. And he said, what, what happened here? And he said, well, that's our house. And everything we had was in that house. You see, we didn't trust, 
We didn't trust banks. It's more serious than you think. We had no trust in the banks. So we kept our savings, our life savings, in a room under the floor in that house. Everything we had was in there. He said, we thought we were saving for a rainy day. But we never expected a day of fire. A lot of Christians aren't expecting that. And that's what he means by you'll suffer loss. He said, but Lord, I built a great church. Zip! It burns up. But Lord, I get Zip! He's not interested. He's told us as believers what our responsibility is. And if we fail to do that, it'll be good stuff that we're doing, really cool stuff, but it's going to be inconsequential to God, and you'll not receive a reward for that. I gravely fear that many Christians just on the other side, once they step in, will say, how large was your pile of ashes? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. We need to engage in those things that God has told us to do. The reason he left us here is to represent him, to represent him, to go everywhere and turn men and women into disciples. The rest will be taken care of. Don't have to worry about anything else. Let's stand.